Lord, through the storm of depression, the storm of anxiety, Lord, the storm where relationships are lost, the storm of financial trouble, Lord, of dreams that seem no longer attainable, out of reach. Lord, through all those storms, You are Lord. Lord of all. And Father, we thank You for Your sovereignty. We thank You for Your love. We thank You for who You are. Your presence among us. We ask, Father, that even when we cannot observe, we will have the certain knowledge that You are in control. You are Lord. Lord of all. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So it was over 150 years ago that Victor Hugo wrote his great novel, Les Miserables, a novel that was set in 19th century France. It's a gripping tale about love and broken dreams and sacrifice and the struggle for redemption as seen through the lives of Cosette and Jean Valjean and Xavier. While the story may be familiar to us, some of the background may not. Victor Hugo was in fact writing a play on June the 5th, 1832, when General Jean Lamarck died. And the streets suddenly became engulfed in gunfire and barricades. And Hugo went out into the street to look and see what was happening. But caught behind a barricade, he was literally imprisoned between two columns for an interminable amount of time, at least what seemed to him, by a barrage of bullets. And that was the scene that Hugo described some 30 years later in his novel. He knew death, he knew war. And after his great novel, he wrote these words, In the 20th century... I really wish that I could I could go into this in great detail. I, I, I cannot. Uh, but this actually is part of the source of where the world finds itself now. In the 20th century, war will be dead. The scaffold will be dead. Hatred will be dead. Frontier boundaries will be dead. Dogmas will be dead. But man will live he will possess something higher than all these, a great country, the whole earth, a great hope, the whole heaven. And now we find ourselves in the midst of chaos and turmoil where simple disagreement is seen as racism, hate, stupidity. This past Tuesday, you know, Oregon decriminalized all drugs. Let's just open that door. The people celebrated. Other states said, me too, me too, I'm next. The 20th century 
my friends, has passed. And as one we shout, the 20th century stands witness to how wrong you were, Victor. The 20th century is, it was not good in the 21st century. Seems like it's not going to be any better. But still, we have to know some things. One is that Victor Hugo was a brilliant man. And in fact, he was representative of all the intelligentsia at the end of the 19th century. However, something happened. And that something was World War I. We do not know or appreciate the impact of World War I on Western society. We think of it as some ancient history, and we don't understand that in a few short years, three or four years, that ideology that all of the intelligentsia in the educated world held to was dead. There's not enough time to tell you how devastating World War I was to the West. I'll just give you one example. Gabriel Chavier's 1930 novel, Fear, he opens with this. Carefree France in its summer costumes, but in a few short days, civilization was wiped out. What he meant, as Ernest Hemingway put it, was the loss of innocence. And what that meant was the loss of good. And when the loss of good happened, the loss of evil also happened. Not as realities, but as words. Those words no longer held any meaning. And World War I was the swift and stunning blow to modernism. We're still getting over it. That's where postmodernism came from. That modernism was the belief that socially progressive thought affirmed the ability and the power of human beings to create and improve and reshape their environment with all the, sec uh, the scientific knowledge and technology at their disposal. Go back if you ever care to and look at the writings about the future during this time. It was a wondrous marvel. Everyone was happy. Crops were growing. Everyone was fed. It was all good. It was bright and it was shining. We even went to the moon. Build little colonies there. How happy and cool is that? In time, certainly by the 50s and the 60s, Society at large finally registered fully what had happened in 1918. And that was that modernism was utterly dead. Now, every book or every movie that you see about the future is a wilderness. It's either filled with sand or it's filled with snow or it's filled with water. It's filled with zombies and viruses and disease. There is no good. And in fact, if someone were to write a book or create a film that was some utopian, idyllic future that these modernists look for, the critics and you and I would laugh it off the shelf. 
because we no longer believe it. We don't. Far from utopia, postmodernism was forced on us by machine gun and artillery and tank at the beginning of the 20th century. And if anybody ever said anything good about the future, they would say rose-colored glasses all around. I mean, we know there are no heroes. When was the last true hero? You kind of got to go all the way back to the 30s or 40s to find them. 60s, they killed them all off. From the 2000s, they've made the villains the heroes. I mean, it's just, it's, it's nonsense. Welcome to postmodernism. I mean, the only thing that we see in the future, think with your real heart, is either anarchy or totalitarianism. It's all that's out there. That's where postmodernism has brought us. That's where it has brought us. But was Hugo entirely wrong? I mean, don't his words actually stir something in your heart and your soul about what should be? In anticipation, I mean, all the way from the Garden of Eden until now, people have wanted a dream that came to reality where there was a society that was filled with justice and mercy and compassion and peace and love. I think Hugo was right about the what, but not about the when. I mean, since the days of Nimrod in Babylon, politicians have promised utopia. In fact, there's a political philosophy that rose out of modernism that was born the year that it died. But it's still with us. Utopia. Politicians have promised, but their promises have all turned to dust. I mean, the dust of deferred hope makes the heart sick, right? But if we listen carefully, we will recognize the faint sounds that this incredible dream will one day come true. A few short weeks ago, We saw in Revelation 19 that the second coming of Jesus Christ was invisible. Not invisible, but in visible power and glory. Everyone could see it. He came to reclaim the earth from the devil and his angels. To end the dominion of evil and fulfill the promise to Abraham and David of an earthly kingdom. So what happens next? Understand this. And I, have, I want to say this over and over till it's kind of uh, drilled in. I don't, I don't say it every week, but I say it once a quarter or so. There are no chapters and verses in the Bible. That was done by Bishop Usher in, you know, just a few hundred years ago, really. So it's a matter of these things are all texts. And there's no gap between 19 and 20. It's a continuation of the same story. And here we have beginning in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel come down from heaven, 
holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, the phrase in this chapter, a thousand years, occurs six times. And that's where we get the word millennium from. So when we talk about the millennium, that's a, actually a Latin word that means uh, a thousand years. It comes from two Latin words, mille, which means a thousand, and enum, which means years, millennium. Um, okay. Biblically speaking, the millennium is the thousand year earthly reign on David's throne by the rightful ruler, Jesus Christ, during which time there will be justice and peace and mercy and long life. And amazingly enough, the absence, the complete absence of satanic or demonic influence. However, among uh, students of the Bible, the passage is a uh, battlefield. And there are two differing views that have the major uh, fight, but nevertheless, it's premillennialism and amillennialism. Now, I need to talk about these two terms for a second. I promise they're easy. I know that if I just used them and went on, uh, Barb would hit me on the head with Maxwell's silver hammer. You have to explain these things. Uh, so our understanding begins with the little Greek letter alpha plus a Latin word that means absence. So it's as simple as that. And that word is privative. So you have alpha in front of English words. It means no. And then the privative in the Latin means absence of some quality. So that might be a little complex, but it's going to get real easy real fast. So these Words like amillennialism, it's an alpha privative in, in front of it. So think about it this way. A, to muse about something is to think deeply and profoundly uh, about it. To amuse means not to think. Therefore, we have amusement parks. That is a place to go where you don't think deeply about anything. Uh, so think about it this way. We know these words, or many of them. Uh, the word Gnostic means to know. Symmetry means order. Synchronism means simultaneous action. Theism means the belief in God. So conversely, we have agnostic, don't know. Asymmetry, mm, no order. Asynchronism. No time, you know, you can do it whenever you want. And ah, atheism, right? Atheism, no uh, God. So ah, millennialism simply means no millennium. Okay, all of that, and I hope now it's really simple to you, just mean no millennium. The amillennialists believe that the event is currently being fulfilled. There will be no thousand year reign because that's a metaphor of the church. Satan was bound at the cross and he's been bound ever since. The late, uh, some of you may recognize this man's name, Ray Stedman said, 
If Satan is indeed bound today, it must be with a very long chain. <laughs> now, to be fair, uh, there was a binding of Satan that took place at the cross. Colossians 2.15 tells us that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. But Scripture tells us that Satan's binding on the cross is really only valid at a practical level for those who believe. Uh, it's, it, it doesn't restrain unbelievers. And in fact, in many of the cases, uh, the restraint on us, uh, we tend to overpower it sometimes. But Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this ages, age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. This is current. So there was a binding. But it's not the binding of that's spoken of in Revelation 20. In fact, we saw through the last verse that I read that Satan actually has a deceiving power. And that deceiving power, which he exercises right now, is to deceive the nations. Your enemy, and this is, we also face some of this as well. In fact, there's a deceit that's going to be coming uh, that if it were not cut short, Scripture says that even the elect would fall for it. Satan has an enormous, tremendous power to deceive. Peter tells us your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. But the binding that is of today and the binding in Revelation are wholly different matters. As we read about this, um, we find that there are a number of differences. First, this binding follows the second coming. The, the binding that occurred at the cross was the first coming. This binding is the, the second coming. Second, Jesus didn't bind Satan. Did you ever notice that? I, you know, I wrestle in my mind and I, you know, I won't expose all that here, but I go back and forth how, you know, he could have called 10,000 angels, right? He didn't need to. He didn't need any angels. Oh, by the way, like in the Matrix, you don't have to say no. It just isn't. I mean, God is God. Why we have this whole display out there, I think I only have partial answers for. I don't have the fullness of that, and I'm glad I don't. But it's one day I look forward to knowing what he's doing. But he doesn't even do, he doesn't need to do it himself. Hey, angel. And we say, oh, this must be the most powerful angel out there. It's got to be like Michael or somebody like that. <laughs> Could be any angel. If God empowers an angel to throw Satan into the abyss, he is empowered to throw Satan in the abyss. You have the power to resist the most perfect, although malevolent, the most powerful created being in the universe. You have the power to say no. And he will back off. Oh, ooh, sorry. No, it's, he will flee from you. We have no idea about the power that we have through Jesus Christ. An angel binds him. 
Third, the angel throws him into the abyss. Trust me, Satan did not want to go there. And then he does a few things. He binds him with chains. And then he locks, he throws him in the abyss. And whatever the door is, he locks it. And then he seals it. Okay. So what do these images mean? First, the chain symbolizes that the complete restraint of his power. During these thousand years, Satan will have no power at all. He will not have any influence over the nations or anything. Second, that he's thrown into the abyss. Not only will he not have power, he will not have presence. He's, he's, he's completely someplace else. Third, the angel shuts the door and locks it. What that means is when you close the prison door and you lock it, what that means is what's ever on the other side, in this case Satan, he cannot get out. He is bound. He is locked in. But what does it mean to seal it? Now, I have no idea who in the heavens would want to come and unlock the door before the time. But that's what the seal means. The seal means is that no one from the outside will be able to unlock the door to allow him out. It can't be said any stronger that he will not be there. He will have no influence. It will be impossible for him to do this. And we're given in the word of God, the purpose is to keep him from deceiving the nations. As you're well aware, uh, Satan's goal throughout history up until this day and this time has been to, to deceive the nations, to take control, to be in uh, power. That's what Tolkien's works were all about. The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings and all of that was about the impossibility for anyone to wield power. No one can. Even a small amount of power will turn your heart towards evil. It's a corrupting influence. But the thing is, is we have to have, we have, to have something. We know no different. So we wield power, little bits of power. You can wield this ring or you can wield that ring, but you can't wield the ring. No one can. Not even the most innocent of creatures. And lies have been poured into human ears from these unseen and invisible forces since the time of Eve. The whole record of human history is about deceitfulness. I don't even want to go off on social media. But maybe one day I will, because I think that that's something that needs to be addressed directly and publicly, because it is not what you think it is. But in 24 through 6, then God says this. Well, I love what he says. Essentially, you have all this power arrayed against God, and he just basically says, no, that's it. That no. And so he says this in 24 through 6. Now I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such. The second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So we see three distinct groups here. The last group we're not going to say uh, much about because they are the group that will come to life at the end of the thousand years. And we'll talk about that in a few moments. But first, there are two others. John sees thrones and seated on them are those who had been given authority to judge. So who are they? Well, I mean, the rest of the New Testament is quite clear who they are. This ties in with the promise that Jesus made to the 12 disciples. It's found in uh, Matthew 19.28 where Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on the glorious throne, you will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So he gives the disciples the authority to judge. The twelve disciples are specifically to judge the nation of restored Israel. But that phrase actually includes more than the 12 disciples because there are other scriptures there. It's to those he's given authority to judge. You'll recall a number of months ago in Revelation chapter 2, we read to him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Thus, uh, among the disciples, there will also be believers. Us. Present. It, Paul wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians 6, 2. And this was amazing because he was talking about a practical thing that they were having to deal with at that point. And he's marveling. I mean, he's marveling. Can't you figure this out? And he says this. Do, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And he even goes further. Do you not know that we will judge angels? I mean, his argument is this, that if, if we're going to do all this judging and all this uh, learning, we, we learn how to do it now. <laughs> For heaven's sake, he says, can't you settle a few little congregational disputes out there? <laughs> There's also the second group. Uh, The martyrs of the tribulation, those that have been beheaded for their testimony of Jesus and had not worshipped the beast or his image or received his mark. Uh, This is the same group that we saw in Revelation 6 and 7 who were put to death and uh, because of their faith in Christ. They refused to uh, bow to the Antichrist's authority and worship him. And so now they are reigning with Christ. Further, it says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were 
and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's Revelation 27 through 10. One might ask this question. Why have the millennium if you're just going to have another war? I mean, seriously, what kind of sense does that make? Let me give you the answer. This is your takeaway. This is the takeaway from this message. A thousand years of peace and prosperity and blessing. In the absence of Satan and in the absence of his demonic hosts will demonstrate to humans and to the heavenly hosts the fact that we belong to a fallen race. That everyone is born with a rebellious nature. The whole purpose of the millennium, other than the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and David that the Messiah will sit on the throne, is to demonstrate to the heavenlies that we must have Christ. It's as simple as that. The people who go into the millennium will not be perfect. That will come for what happens after this. That's later. A thousand years. God wants to impress on humanity what Jeremiah declared plainly. The heart of man is deceitful above all things. Desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's why we all need salvation. We are desperate and we are hopeless Without it, I mean, just take a look at your own life and thoughts, your own heart and your own motives. There's no question but that we are born again, but that we also have this nature inside of us that only when we are in the resurrected presence of Jesus Christ will this thing be gone from us for a thousand years. Temptation of the devil ceases. He can't stir that up in us. We'll live in peace. Isaiah 2 tells us they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And men shall make war no more. But practically in the same breath, Isaiah says that the Messiah will judge among the nations and settle disputes among the people. Sin will be present in the absence of Satan. I mean, the presence of sin is why Jesus will have to rule with a rod of iron. Still, uh, let me say this about the millennium. Righteousness will be dominant. Today, evil is prevailing and righteousness struggles to exist. But then it will be reversed. The predominant practice of the day will be justice and mercy and compassion and peace and purity. But be aware in that day that evil will still be present in the hearts of men. It'll just be under wraps, struggling to exist. They're going to march on Jerusalem and it's destroyed. I'm going to, I'll let you read uh, verses 11 through uh, 15 on your own, but I want you to notice this about this. John 5.22 tells us that the judge is Jesus, not the Father. This is about the great right, white throne and the judgment and the names that are written in the book of life. 
The Father has committed all judgment to the Son. So he who sits in judgment on this throne is none other than Jesus Christ himself. The people who are living, they're going to be determined whether their names are in the book of life as well. And it is written, our names are written in the book of life when we believe in Jesus Christ. Toward the end of his life, uh, Victor Hugo proclaimed, he was proclaimed as the romantic movement's most influential mind, period. The greatest thinker of that entire time. But something happened. His daughter died. That changed him dramatically. And he wrote a book. Actually, it's a 5,700 line poem. That's a book. (laughs) God and the End of Satan. To try to make some sense of the loss that he felt. His hope was no longer in the progressive betterment of man. And it moved towards the sovereignty of God. He wrote that even in the absence of Satan, having been thrown into the abyss, our bent is still towards sin. He was not a dispensational premillennialist. That was his his current real-time sense. That even though Satan no longer had power, the evil in us, the death surrounding us, sin would still dominate us. I don't know if we're going to see Victor Hugo in heaven. I would rather like to think that we would. But more than that, I would rather like to think that all of us who are listening to me right now would be together. So you know that your name is written in the book of life. Nothing will be hidden from his view on that day. Nothing. If we come to him, we'll be given life. First John, he wrote this. This is the testimony that God has given us. Eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. The condition of our world today leads many to question whether the classical doctrine of sovereignty has any meaning anymore or not. But based on the word of God, he's currently not making all things well. It's not what he's doing right now. He's letting Satan deceive the nations. But our concern this day is that our names are written in the book of life. Today, righteousness struggles and evil prevails. But one day, righteousness will prevail. For God, for our King, is Lord of Lords. He has the right to rule. And He is, in fact, ruling now. Father, we we come before You Questions in our minds aren't fully reconciled. That's why it's through the storm. You are Lord of all. It's not through the peace and through the the days when we feel oh so close to you. It's, It's through the storm. You are Lord. You are Lord of lords. You are King of kings. Almighty God. 
And we love you. And we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us on the cross. That through his death, we might have life, life eternal. We thank you through Christ our Lord. Amen.